You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Sam Radwan, who is the managing partner and founder of Enhance International, a U.S.-based, Chicago-based firm with 15 years of engagement in China, particular focus on private sector and in the health sector. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for being with us today. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Sam, let's start before we get into some of the substantive questions around China and what's happening in the COVID outbreak and what's happening in the health sector itself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in this line of work? What is it that Enhance International does that uh, has created this, you know, 15-year-long success story? Well, uh, it all started with uh, my passion and love of Chinese history and Chinese art. And my first opportunity to work in China was as a consultant back in 2003 and uh, fell in love ever since. And we started the company and our focus or my background and expertise has always been in the healthcare and the health insurance and financial services sector. And we started the business there. And initially we started the business in Shanghai. But we learned very quickly that if you are really looking to deal with the influencers, uh, you have to be in Beijing. So we expanded our presence to the Beijing area. We also have an office in Taipei, right, in Taiwan. And when we started the company, it was during the time when things were looking rosy in terms of Taiwan and China getting closer together, or at least uh, in terms of economic uh, collaboration. As a matter of fact, uh, we were involved in the discussions that the uh, Taiwanese regulator uh, was having with the Chinese around the MOU to increase cooperation in the financial services sector. Granted, things have changed right now, but that's how we came about and we're slowly evolving as things evolve in the market right now. Thank you. So I wanted to start with getting your perspective on what's been happening with the surge of infections that started in the fall, carry forward into the new year. Your podcast is part of a series, a dedicated series we've had now stretching out a number of weeks, focus on what's going on within China in this amazing period. In your view, what's the status of this surge outbreak? Is it over? Are we likely to see a second peak? How are you understanding that and describing that to people who, like us, are wondering what's going on? Interesting. Before we get into that, I would like to mention that uh, just uh, over the past week or so, it's been a little bit like deja vu with me contacting my clients and my employees and a lot of them calling in sick with a fever, right? This one, it's being diagnosed as H1N1, right? But it reminds me so much of the situation when I was there in November and December and uh, people were infecting each other and it was a domino effect. So the official narrative right now is the seasonal influenza cases now are higher than that of COVID. It is very difficult for us to know whether that's the case or not, but we can really tell that for this particular month per se, the Chinese consumer, the Chinese population has forgotten about COVID a little bit or wanting to forget about it. 
And, you know, we're certainly not physicians or have a physician background, right? But what has happened is because of the wave was so acute and so many people got infected at the same time, experts are telling us basically that herd immunity is in effect right now in China on a fairly wide basis. And that maybe in the summertime is when we're going to start seeing the next uh, wave of infections. Now, earlier you had said, as this was unfolding in the latter part of last year, you had returned and you'd observed what was happening and you were, your staff were telling you, you had said, this is likely to leave a million dead fairly quickly in the new year. And that the rural populations, the elderly and any and other populations that are acutely vulnerable, under-vaccinated, not vaccinated, immunocompromised, that's where we're going to see really tough impacts. Are we able to speak with a bit more facts about what's actually happened now, Sam? What do you think? Let me give you an idea of some of the key variables that went into that estimate. Right? And I think the first variable that you need to take into consideration is demographic. China, as you're aware, uh, or at least what the Hong Kong data has shown us, is the eye of the storm is for those who are 80 years and older. And China has over 30 million of those. Okay? Similar distribution is that of Hong Kong. But if you look at a, a country like India, for example, with a similar population, the 80 and over are like half the population. So you have a major demographic problem uh, in terms of the age distribution of uh, the Chinese population. And what the Hong Kong data shows us that if you're not uh, vaccinated at that age, okay, the death rate could be as high as 14%. The other demographic factor that you want to take into consideration is the fact that there's almost an inverse relationship between your age as a Chinese citizen and uh, uh, the likelihood of you being vaccinated. What I mean by that is, overall, uh, 92% of the Chinese are vaccinated. But then when you look at the over 60, it drops to around 85%. But then you go to the uh, over 80, and it's as low as 66%, right? So this problem is further exasperated by the fact that those who are most in need of those vaccinations are the least covered. And they're the most resistant and hesitant. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the uh, government tried everything, I believe, from even paying them 500 RMB to get vaccinated, etc. But they were only able to move the needle slightly from 60% to around, I believe, 66% in January, right? And their goal of uh, achieving over 90%, I believe, uh, turned out to be an impossible task. The other factor that you need to take into consideration is, as you mentioned, geographic. Uh, and the Hong Kong data will not help you much with that. Uh, and you have to ta uh, take in other assumptions. And that factor is related to the fact that if you look at health professionals per 1,000 persons in a big city like Beijing, right, it is double what it is in the rural community. So you've got close to 400 million, right, who have a starkly different healthcare support than you have in the big cities. So you factor that in and you start to understand as to why it is even difficult to get to those people and understand whether or not they have been infected, let alone 
uh, working with them to help them get vaccinated, etc. So there's a stark difference between the type of healthcare support that you can get in the rural area uh, and places like Beijing. Thank you. Andrew. Thank you, Steve. Sam, so, you know, I think the question that we all have is, what does this mean both for China, which is now, you know, about to go into their uh, People's Congress, predicting 5% growth this year, which seems pretty unlikely. What does it mean for China? And what does it mean for us here in the United States, worried that, you know, COVID's going to continue to to grow and spread? That's a very good question, right? Uh, so what I would like to mention is that uh, not only did I visit China in November and December of 2022, I was also there in uh, September, October of 2021. And uh, during that time was when COVID was uh, a big challenge for the West. And what was very clear to me is the extreme pride that the people felt in China, down to the taxi driver who was uh, uh, driving me over to my hotel, of how, look how we as China dealt with this uh, situation in a much better way than the U.S. did, right? We finally beat the U.S. in something. That's why you've seen such inflexibility from moving away from zero COVID despite of what happened. When I went to China this time, it's a completely, completely different story. It is palpable how the overall mentality and uh, the atmosphere in China has changed, right? Uh, we started this business 15 years ago, and this was after the financial crisis. Great talent from China, uh, top graduates of Ivy League schools, they were so eager to go back to China because they felt that that's where the opportunity is and uh, that's where the growth opportunity is. That is not the case at all right now uh, after what has happened. So I'm not surprised at all that China is recoiling, uh, economically speaking, because the people themselves have recoiled. Now, from a, a COVID perspective, uh, that is a very interesting question because uh, there seems to be really a lull that uh, has happened ever since the infections in January and February, which is quite surprising. So we're not hearing about a lot of reinfections as of yet. But is this the calm before the storm? And that's what we're keeping our eye out for. And if so, you are going to see to it that the Chinese citizens are going to rely more and more on traveling abroad to get that type of treatment or vaccination or medication that they so desperately need and that they believe is ineffective where they are sitting in right now. Can I follow up on that? You've spoken to the media and spoken privately about this phenomenon where the Chinese citizens, many of them are very, very informed about Paxlovid. They're informed about mRNA vaccines. They know the comparisons between those vaccines and Sinovac and Sinopharm. They're sophisticated consumers, but they don't have great access internally within China, but they have some access. It may be very exorbitantly expensive, but they also, as of January 8th, they have greater liberty to travel internationally. They have to have the flights. They have to have the visas. They have to be able to move around. You've said you're anticipating you're going to see more medically driven travel. Tell us what you're observing, both in terms of Chinese seeking out 
antivirals like Paxlovid internally within China and seeking out mRNA. Are they finding them anywhere? But also, what are you seeing in terms of travel for that express purpose? Before I get into that, I would like to give you a background as to why we're making that prediction. And what we're looking at is medical literacy in China, which has been tracked for a, a while now. And what we found is that there is a very strong correlation between the level of medical literacy and medical expenditures, as well as the purchase of uh, health insurance. Uh, it's a 0.97 correlation, which is a very high correlation. In general, around a quarter of the Chinese population are considered medically literate, right? And on average, that number grows around 2%. But there was a, a significant spike in terms of medical literacy, where you saw a record increase of 6% at the onset of COVID uh, in 2020, right? We expect to see a similar record of a 6% increase or uh, close to that in 2023. What that's telling you is that you are going to see a shift in the consumer behavior in terms of how they're spending their dollars with a stronger focus now on medical expenditure. And that's going to come in the form of health insurance, in terms of traveling abroad, etc., Unfortunately, that number is more difficult to track, but let me give you an example. So People's Insurance Company of China, PICC, you know, top three insurance company, they have registered the highest sales in health insurance in January ever since they started selling health insurance. Uh, whether that's a blip or not, right, remains to be seen, but certainly you're seeing that as a factor. What is challenging medical uh, tourism right now is more on the supply side as opposed to the demand side. So the average port in China is operating at 24% uh, of its capacity uh, post-COVID. So as these flights start opening up, that's when you're going to be seeing more and more of these type of travel. So it is slower than we anticipated uh, uh, during this particular month but it's going to slowly start to pick up uh, later on in the year. Where are the tourists, the medical tourists going? Are they coming to the United States, Europe, where? Yes, that's a very good point. With the rhetoric uh, that has been coming out of the West in general, the focus has shifted significantly to places like Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, uh, Malaysia. It was Korea, and, uh, but uh, Taiwan even, believe it or not. Those are going to be the main destinations that are going to be getting the lion's share of that medical tourism, at least for now, right? Because the rhetoric between governments has actually reached the people, and they are now preferring to go to those more China-friendly locations than they are uh, to the West and to the U.S., Sam, along those lines, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that is circulating in Washington and national security circles is the issue that our intelligence community believes that China is considering arming Russia in the war with, with their war in Ukraine. You know, if that is indeed something that China pursues, it leaves the United States with little recourse other than to impose sanctions on China and to get our allies in Europe to impose sanctions on China. It seems like that would be a real mess, not just for China, but it would hurt U.S. businesses. Can you comment on that and tell me what you think of that 
scenario? I know it's a lot of speculation, but it's something that is being discussed. Well, having spent over 15 years in the China market now, one thing I've learned is if you're looking to sanction the Chinese government, the problem that you're going to have is where does the Chinese government begin or end? So, for example, let's take the healthcare industry. It is very, very government-centric. Even private hospitals or private entities or companies like Taikong who are looking to build uh, private hospitals across the country, if you look at their shareholder structure, you're going to find what we call SOEs or uh, government investment into uh, these organizations. So it is very, very difficult in a country like China to decouple the involvement of the government from the private sector. That's why it's going to make it so difficult. It's no different in the financial services uh, sector as well. Uh, While the major players are SOEs or tied to the government, even the private players like Ping'an, etc., right? Uh, You're going to find also, if you look closely at their uh, shareholder structure, right, Uh, that they are closely linked to the government as well. But then to just give you a very, very simple example, you know, China Telecom and China Unicom, right? Uh, A small company like ours, we use them and we have no other option but to use them, right? But they have been identified as uh, presenting a security risk to the U.S. because of their contracts with the government. But we have no other option but to use them uh, for telecommunication purposes. So you can only imagine for larger, more complex companies how that would be an issue. I would expect that people like yourself must be a little nervous watching what's happening, right? We have, uh, Andrew has referenced the, this recent development starting at the Munich Security Conference when Wang Yi spoke and then the U.S. government was suggesting that the security assistance by China to Russia was on the table and people began thinking, oh my gosh, that, that will change that war and it'll change our relationship further. Our relationship overall at the moment bilateral relationship is about, is it about the worst point it has ever been at across multiple sectors? Now, health, you could argue health has been less, less stigmatized, less polarizing uh, than other sectors, whether you're talking chips or you're, or you're talking Taiwan or you're talking Ukraine, intellectual property, theft and things of that kind. Health has been a little bit of a different sector, but You look at the direction things are moving in the bilateral relationship, and then you look at what's happening in Congress. You have this new committee on China, select committee on China in the House, uh, very strong leadership, very strong unanimity across party lines about, about the critique of the Chinese government. And to me, it would seem that that suggests that life's going to get more difficult for people like yourself trying to keep active your own engagement between these two worlds in the health sector, the health provider, health technical expertise and advisory between our, between our two countries. How are you looking at this? Yeah, it was very disheartening to uh, listen to what I understood Mike Gallagher say in a statement, which is basically that uh, U.S. businesses that are located in China are complicit in helping the Chinese government undermine uh, the U.S., or at least that's the way I understood it. Let's be fair to Chairman Gallagher. It's not just coming from him. It's coming. It's this is a bipartisan sentiment you're hearing from that committee and from many in Congress. 
Well, that, that is even more disheartening, right? I would make the argument that it has gotten so bad that it's even affecting the healthcare sector. As you know, we are working closely with a think tank in China that actually helped translate some of the books that from English to uh, Chinese helped us with that and uh, really helped us uh, see to it that we had engagement uh, from both sides around ideas around healthcare reform. China is in desperate need of healthcare reform. Uh, I wrote an article that talks about how the Chinese healthcare system is at least 15 years behind uh, the other industries. They are in need, in desperate need of opportunities for reform. And this is something that they would strongly welcome, right? Uh, But even those individuals that I'm talking to you about have contacted me and said, you know, now is not a good time for us to continue discussions officially uh, until things calm down a little. Uh, So even in the healthcare sector, where China is very eager to have more conversations and look for opportunities there, Even there, we're starting to see tension there. And if you allow me to digress a little bit here, right? You know, the situation in China or the healthcare, if I want to call it crisis in China, is different than that in the U.S. In the U.S., it's more of a question of medical inflation, uh, disparity, right? But in China, no matter how much you're willing to pay for healthcare, the quality is not, is not there. I would like to give an example of a very good friend of mine who was a senior managing director at one of the top three global investment banks. And she oversaw the IPO of a lot of the financial services companies in China around a decade ago or so. Her her husband came down with uh, melanoma. And she was talking to me about the horrendous level of uh, treatment uh, that she could only get in China. Right? She was sleeping on the floor. Uh, she was using unsanitary toilets that men were using. Uh, it was the best. And, and she was willing to spend all it takes to cure her husband or, or, or treat her husband. But the infrastructure just was not there. Not only the infrastructure, but the knowledge, uh, the physician knowledge was not there. Long story short is she ended up taking her husband to Hong Kong and eventually to Anderson in Texas. Right. And she can see how it's night and day, you know, where China is. Uh, and it became very apparent to her where China is and the rest of the world is right now. So it, it's a long-winded answer to let you know that more than anything, the opportunity for cooperation in the area of healthcare would be very strongly welcomed by the Chinese. But unfortunately, the current climate doesn't uh, help that much. Let's close by focusing on this whole question of economic reform and restoring economic growth, which is the top-line theme of the gathering in Beijing, the current party congress. You had emphasized earlier last year that the investment in this massive testing and quarantining system at state and local levels was suffocating economic growth and overwhelming the budgets of those local and municipal governments, and that it was simply becoming untenable. Even before you had the outbreaks and you had the protests and stuff, the economic reality. So now the situation is flipped. That's gone. Those demands are gone. As you point out, the health sector is an area that is in need of reform and reinvention. And you have a government that's saying we need to restore growth and jobs for people. 
Does that mean that health as a sector is going to get more attention and that it's an area of opportunity for investing at higher levels and getting getting more jobs out there and modernizing that sector, in your view? Is that what might come out of this government? I believe they have no other choice. I mean, the situation is only going to get worse with the aging population. But the problem in China is no matter how much money they throw at it, uh, that alone won't solve the problem. The big problem that you have is the fact that the government has too tight of a grip on the whole healthcare system. And as you very well know, there isn't any government out there that is able to innovate uh, as well as your ability to start to privatize that sector. So there are attempts to start privatizing that sector, and they will have to continue to uh, let go of the reins a little bit uh, in that area. And yes, that will definitely be an area of uh, strong growth in that area. But I don't think it's going to catch up with the needs of the Chinese consumer uh, in a timely fashion. So as we talked about, medical tourism uh, is going to become not just a short-term phenomenon uh, to take care of the COVID virus, but is actually going to expand even more into other areas. You're going to find cities like Hong Kong gearing up to be that center of innovation in the area of medicine, etc., for the average Chinese citizen. That's a fascinating argument, that that's where you're going to see the innovation. That's where your middle-class Chinese citizen looking for a higher quality of care is going to migrate. We ask all of our guests to close with a comment around what gives you optimism, what gives you hope. And in this particular situation, what gives you hope and optimism, Sam? That's uh, difficult during this time, but let me tell you what we believe, right? That we always believe that healthcare should be apolitical. You know, in the area of uh, not just COVID, but cancer research, etc. We need China as much as they need us, right? Uh, so our hope is cooler heads will prevail. And eventually you will go back and understand that, yes, there are certain areas of the economy where we just cannot do without each other. And healthcare hopefully will be one of those areas because it's more of an ethical and a humanitarian issue, right? And uh, you probably know this better than I do, but we don't know what the next uh, pandemic is going to be like or where it's going to come from, etc. But there's a good likelihood that we're going to need the cooperation of the Chinese in that area. No, I agree entirely that the notion of decoupling our two countries or decoupling China from the West around our basic scientific and biomedical R&D and preparedness for pandemic outbreaks in the future, you can't, you can't imagine doing that. If the idea of walling off is a counterproductive. It's very dangerous for both our national security and for China's. And I can't agree with you more. And the hope is eventually all this rhetoric will will die down, and uh, people will recognize that in the government for sure. Sam, thanks so much for your time today. This has been really one of our most fascinating podcasts, and we really appreciate your perspective. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks, Sam. And uh, wish you all the best. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Marla Hiller. In the first quarter of 2023, 
we will be transitioning coronavirus crisis update into a new format and title that will encompass and carry forward that work on the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some other related work pertaining to HIV AIDS and other areas of priority focus. Stay tuned for that. That work will be carried forward under the banner of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. Thank you.